Hello and welcome to episode 1025 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hi. So we are doing a team preview podcast today. We're going to talk to Mark Bradley about the Braves in a little bit, and in an even littler bit, we're going to talk to Grant Brisby of Coffee Chronicles and SB Nation and our hearts about the Giants. But first, just a little bit of banter. First quick thing, we have a follow-up on the Andrew Miller batting practice cage mystery, I mm-hmm. guess. We we haven't really cracked the case, but we did get an update. We talked about this last week. You spotted a photo of Andrew Miller throwing from the mound in spring training And the weird thing was that the cage that the pitcher would normally throw from behind was behind him, and there was a coach standing behind the cage, but Miller was not behind the cage, so he was not protected, the person you'd think you would want to protect. So a man named Sam Miller heard that conversation, and he happened to be going to Arizona into Indians camp, and he asked Andrew Miller about the the betting practice cage situation. (laughs) And Andrew Miller said that in the first live batting practice of the spring, nobody's really swinging. The batters just want to get used to tracking the ball. So that would explain why he wasn't behind the cage, except that, as you pointed out, why was there a cage or a net there at all if no one was swinging plus and... i have a, a further point that i just yeah. realized as you were saying that so the hitter wants to track the ball better because i don't know i guess the net gets in the way maybe but first of all the ball is released from not behind the net because that wouldn't make any sense the ball is right. released from the slot that's cut out of the net and then the ball flies forward in front of the net yeah. so i don't see how it helps the tra- hitter track the ball and if you want to say well it's hard to pick up the spin if there's a net right behind it well there's still a net right behind it even <laughs> when you put the net behind the pitcher so right. as i think i mean sam sent this email earlier in the day and i guess i've been mulling it ever since over the course of several <laughs> hours and i feel like we nothing has actually been answered <laughs> no not really i mean we know why miller didn't feel like he had to be behind the net, which Mm -hmm. is that no one was swinging, so he couldn't be hit by a ball. But we still don't know why there was a net there. And Sam apparently asked him that too, and he said he did not know why (laughs) the net was there, (laughs) that everything was set up before the players went out there. Mm -hmm. So either someone had already been using the net and it was just left out there, and maybe there's a lazy grounds crew at Indian Spring Training, or maybe this was just an extremely lame prank. Of and some it wasn't. Kind. It's I, not uh, apparently. Know. It's not unique to them because Tim Britton earlier Sunday tweeted a picture from Red Sox camp of the same setup. So based on a sample of two out of two, this seems to be a league-wide phenomenon. Or I don't know how else to explain it, but clearly there is an answer that we're not being given as to why there's a net and as. As I emailed back, um, I, my hunch is that the coach who stands behind the net just likes to have something to lean on because I <laughs> guess coaches are probably on their feet much of the day and, uh, yeah. and you just want to lean. So that's probably the answer, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not Someone listening has to have a better answer than that. So yeah. if you know, let us know. A little more, I guess, banter, not a follow-up mm-hmm. to anything, but it came up again in the Effectively Wild Facebook group, which is very useful for finding things to banter about. 
it yes. was uh, re-brought to my attention, I guess, that Tom Verducci is writing a book. So for a little bit of background, I think it's very easy, terrifically easy to draw parallels between the Cubs winning the World Series and the 2004 Red Sox winning the World Series. I, like much of America, cheered for the 2004 Red Sox and have lived to regret it ever since because of <laughs> what became of that phenomenon. And uh, so the Cubs won, and I think it's easy to think that, okay, now the Cubs got to enjoy their ride as America's favorite bandwagon, and now that they've won, everyone is going to turn against them, just as they did the Red Sox, and I guess oddly didn't the White Sox after they snapped their own curse. Nobody cares about the White Sox (laughs) at all. Cubs, clearly different, more alike to the Red Sox. So Tom Verducci is writing a book. If you are not familiar with the book, I will read you the title, and then I don't know what the word for the subtitle, but it's probably subtitle, so I'm going to read all of them. Title, The Cubs Way. Below that, the zen of building the best team in baseball and breaking the curse. Tom Verducci, New York Times bestselling author. I didn't need to read that last part, but hey, Tom Verducci, <laughs> I'm giving you a plug. I don't work for the government. Buy the book or don't. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't have any sort of emotional connection to or against the Cubs personally, but I think it's very easy to see that there were are people who would have a strong response to this book being written and published, uh, Mm -hmm. both in favor of and in, I guess, I don't know, disfavor of. Mm -hmm. Tom Verducci, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the Cubs one way or another. He is a writer, and this is no different than you or I writing a book. Tom Verducci, I'm sure, identified this as a good way to write a book and have it sold and make money. Because Mm -hmm. as you've experienced, when you write a book with a compelling topic, then people buy it, which is what you want (laughs) from a book. So just looking at the conversation, I don't know if you clicked through the conversation that took place in the Facebook group when this link was posted. I uh, have not. I thought it was going to get cardinalsy. It seemed to be talking about that. It sure did. It did get cardinalsy. So maybe (laughs) maybe the outcome of this is that everybody just re-hates the cardinals. I don't know. That would be a fun way if the Cubs win the World Series. But I think the probability is that people really will turn against the Cubs. Of course, Cubs fans will remain Cubs fans. But I think that the, the year of being beloved, or I guess maybe the two years of being more nationally beloved, they have come to a close. Now the Cubs are going to be recognized as the juggernaut that they are becoming. And People generally don't like juggernauts, especially juggernauts who have books written about them, which is not, again, unique to any sort of champion. But I guess my question is, is there anything that could be done to avoid people turning against against the Cubs? And as a follow up to that question, does it make any difference? Does it matter? It probably doesn't matter to the Cubs. I mean, they're not going to make less money or win fewer games if there is an anti-Cubs backlash, I wouldn't think. They sell out all their games at Wrigley Field anyway, and they have a great baseball team, and people are still going to want to watch them, even if they start to dislike them. So I don't think it matters to the Cubs. Maybe it will matter to some Cubs fans who find themselves going from the lovable losers that everyone sort of felt sorry for or felt sympathy for to the team that everyone resents because they're so good that that's going to be whiplash for them, which I don't know if that was really the case for Cardinals fans. I think Cardinals fans are somewhat surprised, at least Will Leach has been surprised, I think, 
at the extent of the animosity. But the Cardinals have always been good. They're a storied franchise, and they've won the second most World Series. And so it's not unusual for the Cardinals to have success, whereas with the Cubs, it's going from one end of the spectrum to the other. So I imagine that that will be somewhat jarring for Cubs fans. As for what they can do to avoid it, I don't know. It's it's hard to pinpoint exactly how the Cardinals' reputation for best fans in baseball and all of that came along. It's not totally clear to me that the team has done all that much to promote that. And I don't know, I, I guess sometimes you have quotes from the organization or the team that might rub people the wrong way, but it seems not so much that it's coming from the team as that it's just kind of coming from the fans or coming from general resentment of a team that's always good. And I don't know, it's just if the Cubs spend a lot, I think that hurts probably. If they go out and they keep signing all the free agents, then that's something that people would probably resent. Whereas if they just mostly win because of this homegrown core, you kind of have to give it to them if it's just lifelong young Cubs who've been with the organization their whole careers. It's harder to resent that, I think, but probably nothing they can do if they are good for the next, I don't know, five, ten years and they're always winning and maybe they get another World Series in there somewhere, people are going to get sick of them. That's just what happens. Yeah, I don't know if the anti-Giants fervor ever developed. I uh, I wouldn't really have a clear understanding of that because I live in what is sort of peripheral Giants country. This is mm-hmm. Oregon is sort of split uh, Mariners when they're not terrible and Giants. And so I don't really get a whole lot of anti-Giants experience regardless. But I don't know if people turned on them the way that I get the sense they will on the Cubs. I don't know. I can't speak from any sort of position of authority here, I guess. Just like I don't know if anyone turned on the Royals. I feel like at least in the online circles, uh, certainly the (laughs) analytical online circles, I think people were maybe more anti-Royals before they won the World Series, Mm -hmm. at which point we all just threw up our hands and said, well, you got us. Yeah, and then I don't think there was anything lingering last year, so I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe this is just like a the Cubs. Maybe this is inevitable for them because there was not a team that was more similar to the Red Sox in every regard, right down mm-hmm. to the people in charge of building the team. I guess. Yeah, uh, although they didn't really have like the character of the Red Sox, like that the idiots or like mm-hmm. the beards or whatever, like. That stuff was fun when they hadn't won, and then it was less fun in retrospect. The Cubs don't really have that. Like, there's less to latch onto, I think, with them. Like, there's the there's the that's Cub saying, which uh, I could imagine getting on people's nerves. It's just like a team spirit promoting saying. But as far as facial hair or nicknames for themselves or crazy characters who get on your nerves after a while the cubs don't have that to the same right. extent i mean so. like anthony rizzo seems like he's probably just the nicest person in sports just yeah. the, <laughs> right. the way that he is it seems like it's a team of like charming nice young men and john lackey so yeah. <laughs> i guess there's not yeah. a whole lot to build there certainly no mm-hmm. johnny damon caveman situation no jason hayward seems like a super nice guy yeah there's just a a bunch of either nice or generic baseball players there. So maybe that makes them less hateable. I don't know if the the Cardinals didn't really have that uh, Red Sox sort of ethos either, so it didn't help them. But 
Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see because the Cubs did have that status and one win totally erased that status that it took them over a century to develop. And so it's going to be a a pretty jarring change for people who are used to one thing and now have the other. Sticking to the Cubs real quick, I just clicked over to this article on Cubs.com. It's about Jason Hayward, who you just mentioned. And if you hover your cursor over the tab, then the headline reads, Joe Madden likes Jason Hayward's early results. The actual headline reads, Joe Madden likes Hayward's tweaked approach. And I wonder if they tweaked it because the first sentence of the article reads, Jason Hayward is hitless in two games this spring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the I process. Get, <laughs> yeah, the, the Cardinals, th- the best fans of baseball Cardinals deal. I also don't know the origin of it. It clearly is something that seems to be propagated by people who hate the Cardinals and want to make fun of them. Of course, there's the Twitter account and there's probably a Facebook mm-hmm. page dedicated to the Twitter account. And that's just the way that these things work. But mm-hmm. I think if you look at like any teams, except for probably the Marlins Twitter account, they all refer to their fans as being the best fans in baseball. And every press <laughs> release from, from team ownership will say how happy they are. And they want to fulfill the dreams of the best fans in baseball. I can only assume they're referring to their own team's fans. Cause otherwise it's very selfless of them. So I don't know why, the Cardinals get it to the extent that they do. Uh, I, I don't know what sort of got the ball rolling in that direction. I'm sure that people in the Facebook group will be more than happy to educate <laughs> me on the subject because that seems to be the most emotional thing that people are discussing mm-hmm. uh, these days. But I don't know how far down it goes or, or what the origin story is of that. But I know even I have been, well, I don't know the word, I guess, but I have been caused to believe that the Cardinals are arrogant in this way and i don't even know why i just believe it because other people told me to and this is how people get elected i guess (laughs) all right well we should probably talk to someone who could tell us about giants backlash and giants fatigue so let's get to the preview podcast and talk about a couple baseball teams man you are good at transitions (laughs) someone's experience All right, as promised, threatened, we are now back with Grant Brisby to talk about the Giants. Hi, Grant. Hi, have you been talking about the Giants this whole time without me? Actually, yeah, we did just talk about the Giants a minute ago, and I was going to follow up with you because Jeff and I were just discussing Giants' backlash as it relates to Cardinals' backlash and possible potential Cubs' backlash. So I'd be curious about your thoughts. How do you think they compare because everyone hates Cardinals fans, and there's definitely been some Giants fatigue as they've been winning every year or in the playoffs every year. But I don't know if it's quite reached the level of animosity of Cardinals fan backlash. So how would you classify it? It should be at this point. How can you not be sick of the Giants if you're not a full, full invested Giants fan? Like if you're a Giants fan, you have to wear that with – that's a badge of pride. That, that is – everyone hates you for a reason, and everyone should hate you. I mean, once it's it's adorable. Twice, okay, you know, kind of cute, but stop it. And three times is just complete nonsense. So the Giants should be hated. Uh, their fans are generally fools, um, but in the same way that that baseball fans all over are fools. I mean, you get a little success, you you start uh, perseverating on the things that 
other maybe bad teams, rebuilding teams look at and go, well, come on, don't complain about that. You have no right to complain. So Giants fans are very good at complaining and, and uh, I, I guess I am too. <laughs> yeah, your your <laughs> essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual was largely a complaint <laughs> yeah. about how unwatchable the 2016 Giants were. You you made them sound less watchable than any playoff team in baseball history. It sounded excruciating to oh. watch that season. <laughs> oh, man, can you imagine just being able to watch a normal team like the Diamondbacks last year? Just a team with <laughs> no bumps in the road, nothing wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a unique kind of unwatchability. It just the uh, the combination of a bad bullpen and an offense that that can't come back in the late innings just sort of combined to make a uniquely and supremely easy to hate team. I guess is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Easy to hate the, good team. <laughs> the bullpen thing, you lived it. You know, it sort of came out of nowhere. I don't think anyone ever thought the Giants had a shutdown bullpen, but that was absurd. Everything that happened in the last few months, that it didn't make any sense. So it was, I think, the most obvious move in baseball of the last 10 years was the Giants ending up with Mark Melanson. Is there any way to talk about what happened rationally, or is it just so perfectly human that you know it's not going to repeat, but they still had to go get a closer anyway? Yeah, it- the farther away that we get from the Melanson signing, the more I'm thinking, ah, they really could have used that money to improve the lineup or you know, they could have done a lot with that money, like sign Brad Ziegler and assume that the bullpen's not going to be that horrible again because it, there's no way it could be and use use the savings on, I don't know, Cespedes, or that's maybe out of the price range, but do something that improves the lineup. So the farther away we're, we are from the NLDS, the more I'm thinking, oh boy, Melanson was sort of a, you know, market price, uh, you know, Nordstrom sort of big ticket item that maybe the Giants didn't quite need. At the same time, I'm sure glad that if they spent money, they spent it on someone like Melanson who's just constantly good who's who's eternally good who's got the uh the cutter that that should keep him keep him going even if the velocity dips a little so i'm a fan of the move well they had to save some cash in reserve to sign every veteran infielder ever <laughs> to just to have eight backups in case someone goes down it is a weird weird thing they're doing and i can't place it because uh, like kelby tomlinson is the platonic ideal of a uh, utility infielder. He can fill in it short, no problem. He's he's uh, not a guy you want starting 150 games at short, but he's definitely competent there. He can play second, play third. He's fast. He's uh, uh, kind of a high average, puts the ball in play guy that you would want off the bench perhaps. So they have the guy, and but they're bringing in Gordon Beckham and Aaron Hill and Jimmy Rollins and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably missing like five guys. And I, they can't all make the team, you know, especially like I'm, look, I'm looking at the MLB depth charts on roster resource and they don't have any of those guys making the team. They've got uh, Jay Gung Huang making the team and, and Connor Glaspie and like none of those veteran free agents are, are even making the team. So I don't know why they're agreeing to sign with the Giants. Is that the only offer they got like i don't i I can't fathom i can't figure it out is your new triple a affiliate the long island ducks (laughs) (laughs) right i mean one of them's going to hit a game-winning home run in a playoff series right so they know that if they sign with the giants they'll have a decent chance of being the next ishikawa or whoever so yeah No, but you got to. You, you have to. You come, dream of being the next Travis Ishikawa. <laughs> no, you have to come back though. Those are the rules. Like you have to leave the Giants and come back. It doesn't just work 
you know, they, they can't just go out and get Dan Ugler or Jeff Francoeur. It has to be Ishikawa. He goes, he backpacks through Europe for a bit. He comes back and then he hits the, the home run. Connor Glaspie, you know, he leaves. He, uh, I think he was probably pitching in Korea for a while, came back and now he can hit the, the big home run for the Giants. So it's not as simple as just getting Aaron Hill and hoping it works out. It, it, he's, you know, they've got to get Cody Ransom back or something. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of home runs, the Giants don't hit a lot of them, but they kind of do, right? Because the, the, Looking at the last five years, Giants home games, so hitters and pitchers combined, the last five years, Giants home games have had 530 home runs, which is very few. I didn't put that in context, but that's very few. Giants road games over the same span of time, 811 home runs. That's the difference of, <laughs> I'm just going to do this mentally, that's the difference of 7,517 <laughs> home runs over the last five years. Do you, obviously if you're a Rockies fan, you know that Coors Field is insane. You know that pitchers are better than they look, hitters are worse than they look. Are Have Giants fans internalized this, or is there still complaint that it's just not a very good or not a very powerful lineup, even though half the time it kind of is? Oh, are you kidding me? There's nothing that Giants fans like to complain about more than Brandon Belt. Like, Brandon Belt is just, ah, oh, man, this guy, they gave him a big extension. I can't figure it out. Like, he he had a, almost a, a 400 on base percent last year. His, his OPS plus is one one thirty or, or one thirty five or something. Like he's he's good. He's very very good. But Giants fans hate him. I mean, not all Giants fans, but a, a big portion of whenever he strikes out, it's just like, oh, this guy again. And he's like the the number one player who's just absolutely crushed by AT and T Park. The dimensions. If you look at his overlay, the the balls he he hits, the triples, the the doubles. You know he should be a, a twenty five homer guy at least. And he's that doesn't mean he's not good because he clearly still is. He's just not getting his due from from the hometown fans. Yeah. Do players complain about it? You used to hear at least Padres hitters complaining about the park, or do Giants hitters complain about it, or is it just part of the Giants' way not to complain because whatever it is, it's working? They complain, they grumble. You see the you see the the body language when they hit a, a four hundred and ten foot out to to right field. At the same time, the Giants generally win at AT and T Park, so it's happening to the other guys too. Uh, mm-hmm. They're they're generally you know, hitting well at AT&T Park, the stands are full. I don't think they want to burn the place down. I, but you can see the body language when when players hit into those long, long, deep outs. Uh, they, they're not wild about it. You know, the pitchers are, though. So. so is that the idea with whatever is happening in left field, that if you just get people who are super beefy strong, that maybe the park can't hold them? I, it, it's something like that, because Jared Parker... Uh, has the kind of power where he can hit balls into uh, McCovey Cove. Mac Williamson should have the right-handed power that that can take on the gaps and and do well there. I I question the wisdom with Parker just because there's so much swing and miss in his bat, and I I don't think he's played that much at AT and T Park where you can like definitively say, well, this guy has the power to get it out of AT and T Park. I I don't think he necessarily is a given to have that kind of power. He he showed it off a little bit here and there, but if I remember correctly, he still has some nasty home road splits that make you think, no, AT&T Park's going to chew him up and spit him out too. So last year, as you pointed out in your essay, in one of the non-complaint portions, the Giants free agent starting pitching signings actually worked out pretty well last year. So the top of their rotation is solid. The bottom is less than solid. 
Matt Moore was very Matt Morey when he <laughs> made it to the Giants last year. And Matt Cain, I guess, was also Matt Caney or latter day Matt Cain, which is not really pitching much yeah. at all or, <laughs> or pitching well. So how do you feel about the back of the rotation? Pretty confident, pretty confident. I, I think uh, uh, Matt Morey this year is going to be a little bit better of a, of a Matt Moore experience. Uh, just getting one year further removed from from Tommy John, one year further removed from the weird rabbit ball hijinks that were going on in Tampa. So I, I'm optimistic about him. Uh, Bumgarner Cueto, of course, at the top is fantastic. Uh, Samarja really showed how uniquely mediocre and excitingly mediocre he is, if that makes sense. Like, I've never seen a more exciting mediocre pitcher and it's like perfect he's, he's gonna slot right in the three or four slot um and he's fine as for matt kane no i'm not i'm not optimistic i want to be um but I, this is year five let's see 2013 14 15 16 this is like year five that he hasn't been good and that's i'm gonna that that's not gonna help them win I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, but they've got guys behind them. They've got Tyler Beatty. They've got uh, Ty Block if they, if they need someone immediately, maybe Tyler Beatty down the road for someone who's got a little bit more potential. So they have sort of up, upper rotation options. I'm not too worried about Matt Cain. And the, the first four in the rotation, they fill me with a, a fair measure of confidence. What is the current situation with Joe Panic, who as most people listening to this should know, sustained a concussion last June. Through to that point, he seemed like he was one of, if not the most underrated second baseman in all of baseball. And then all of a sudden, he's pretty much stopped hitting. He says, I think he said recently that his vision went to, went down the toilet after the concussion, but then his strikeout rate didn't really soar. He just made terrible, terrible contacts. Contact, but, but yeah. I didn't watch him. You did watch him. You are more familiar with what's going on right now. What is the air around Joe Panic? I'm 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 bullish, and I, I watched him, and it seemed like he was hyper unlucky last year. You know, the batting average in balls in play was maybe a hundred points below what it normally was. I can't remember exactly, but it it also tracks with him making poor contact. So if he's not hitting the ball as hard, the 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 batting average in balls in play isn't gonna isn't gonna be so hot. So it's not as if you can just say he was unlucky, but watching it, it looked like a guy who just couldn't buy a hit. Even when he was hitting the ball fairly well, he was hitting uh, directly into the teeth of a of a of a shift or, or something weird. He, it was always someone catching his line drive. So I'm I'm pretty pretty bullish on him. I, I think he's got a, a real real sweet line drive bat that fits that park. If you're not going to hit it over the fence, you should be able to go gap to gap, and and he can do that as well as any left hander, you know, in the division who's not going to hit 20, 30 homers. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic about him, but that's just because I, I like him in his uh, Trubic, nice, good looks. He's a, <laughs> he's a very handsome young man. So maybe that's just coloring my thinking. <laughs> and this is largely the same team as last year's team, aside from Melanson. Is there anything you really wanted the Giants to do or thought made a lot of sense for them to do that they didn't do? I was I was obsessed with them trading for JD Martinez. I thought that was just a perfect mit, uh, mix of a quality lineup guy that they would be able to afford just because he's going to be a free agent after this season. So he wasn't going to take um, like a Chris Sale kind of package or anything that the Giants couldn't meet. It, it, it's, it makes me feel a little bit better that the Tigers didn't do anything at all. 
at all. So, I mean, you know, it's not like someone else got JD Martinez and, and I'm sitting here kicking rocks, but that was someone like that. And I, I think one of my problems is that I, I couldn't really find anyone else like that. There wasn't like the perfect fit that, that fourth outfielder on, on the Marlins or, or Pirates who didn't have a spot that would have been just perfect and left for the, for the Giants. There really wasn't that guy. Um, but that was, that was my, my white whale of the offseason was JD Martinez. I think we've uh, we should probably talk about the Giants' best player. I think we've been hearing that Buster Posey was about to move to first base since Buster Posey was drafted. I am getting tired of hearing about it because he is one of the best defensive catchers in all of baseball, one of the best all-around players in all of baseball, somehow still statistically underrated. Is Buster Posey still, or was he ever, going to move at some point down the line, or is that just kind of fans speculating about, oh, he's a catcher who's gradual aging that that's fan speculation i think the giants are, are feeling exactly what you feel they they see him as like a, a catcher's catcher who's going to calm the the pitching staff and whisper sweet things into their ear and make them better and frame pitches and control the running game you know that's a huge part of his value i think the fans get it in their head that uh one of the stats that's always cited is that he has a much higher ops much higher numbers when he plays first base and that's a split that catches a lot of fans' attention. But that's because when he's playing first base, it's usually against a left-handed pitcher to give Brandon Belt the day off. And he just he hits left-handed pitchers that much better. So it's not necessarily supported by statistics. It's just sort of, this guy's a catcher, he's getting older, and he's not hitting like an MVP like he used to, so he must be right for a move to, to first base. I'm kind of a hipster. I say he's going to move to third. <laughs> 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 How does the 2016 team stack up to the last several pretty good Giants teams? Pretty good to to great, I don't know, however you'd classify them during this run since 2010? I thought last year's team, before the season started, I was as optimistic about that team as I was for any Giants team since I think 2000, you know, since Barry yeah, yeah. Bonds and Jeff Kent. Like I was really optimistic about the 2016 uh, Giants. And for the first half of the season, it made me think I was really smart. Like I was just like, yeah, mm-hmm. this, this team is just that good. You know, Cueto is a little bit better than I expected, but uh, I was pretty confident that this was a, like a, a top tier team. I'm not quite that confident this year. Uh, I still think they're one of the, you know, clearly one of the 10 best teams in baseball. They they have a lot of paths to get to like the top five to that top tier status. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do it. There are a lot of question marks. Uh, uh, you know, Joe Panic might not be good again. You know, he just might hit weak contact. The Giants might have a gaping hole in, in left field and Eduardo Nunez might remember he's Eduardo Nunez. And so, you know, there's a lot of different paths that the Giants can go down that are dark, dark paths. But I think they made their biggest offseason move last trade deadline, which was getting Matt Moore. They gave up a huge price to get him, but they knew they were going to need a starter. They knew that the the market was just, you know, pure sewage. They knew they didn't have the prospects to get someone like Chris Sale. So they made their sort of proactive, aggressive strike last July 
and that that really helps them this this year. I think they they're building around a, a rotation that should be stronger than it was at the start of last year, and it was already a pretty strong rotation. I guess if Panda goes down the crapper, then that's why you sign six or seven veteran <laughs> middle infielders to be terrible in his place. <laughs> they're all going to get released, <laughs> so it just, it's still going to be Kelby Tomlinson. I I, I don't know. Uh, I'm so I'm sure in in your head you still have the Giants as that team that won three championships in five years and there's a certain amount of smugness and arrogance deserved that comes along with that. Yes. But at the same time, the Dodgers have been the first place team what four years in a row in the yeah. division. Yeah. And currently on uh, on Fangraphs we have the Giants projected to be seven games worse than the Dodgers on Baseball Prospectus. They have the Giants projected. 12 games worse than the Dodgers because the Dodgers are inexplicably projected seven games better than the Cubs. I don't know. We've talked about that before. It doesn't make any sense. What is, the, I don't want to say that there's anything of an inferiority complex, but is how frustrating is it if it's frustrating at all to look up and realize that there's a team that has more resources everywhere? It's frustrating. That wasn't a complete question. <laughs> it's frustrating, but hey, you know, Giants fans clearly can't complain. We do, but we shouldn't. But we do. But I mean, it's, but we shouldn't. There is no reason for Giants fans to feel like the you know the little brother sitting here going, "Yo, oh shucks, I just wish we could compete with the dog." Like we we can't do it because even though they've won the division, a they they haven't won the pennant, which is uh, uh, let me just check on. No, no, they haven't won the pennant, um, which is just fantastic. <laughs> and so that makes it easy to just be like, well, you can get it, you know, to do stupid fan stuff and you can get it, but you can't succeed. And, and um, but at the same time, it is disheartening to get thoroughly annihilated by Clayton Kershaw every year, every year in every, he started five games against the Giants last year. And I, if I remember correctly, I don't think he started five games against the rest of the NL West combined. Like, it's just, it's always Kershaw. Kershaw is just always there, and he always pitches seven innings with one earned run, unless it's eight innings with no earned runs, or unless it's nine innings with negative one earned runs. Like, he's just, he's always there, and that's discouraging because he just sort of, he's going to be there forever. He's going to be there for another 10 years, and the Dodgers always winning the division is is almost entirely because of him, I'm convinced. It's 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 just Kershaw. I don't need Logan Forsyth. I don't care. Like, you know, yes, Monty Grandal's framing numbers. Oh, whatever. It's it's Kershaw. It's all Kershaw. It's so fired up and annoyed right now. But Giants fans still shouldn't complain. So it's like it's it's the paradox. Well, this is a question I really wanted to have you on to ask about the Giants offseason. How was Barry Zito's album? Oh, uh, well, uh, having listened to it <laughs> once or several times, um, no, I haven't, I haven't heard it, um, which, which is maybe uh, n- neglectful on my part. Uh, but, you know, I can't even like listen to the new albums from the bands I like. I'm in that, I'm in that uh, dad rut where I'm just listening to, to all the stuff I, I listened to um, back when I had a lot more hair and was cooler. And like, I can't, I can't dig into like when Radiohead puts out a new album, I make sure to listen to that. But that's, that's like about it. Um, I've got maybe 10 bands that I, I actually make time to listen to their new stuff. And if it's not that, then I'm, I'm generally sort of spinning my wheels. And so uh, I, I apologize to Barry Zito, but I, I couldn't even, <laughs> couldn't even give it a novelty spin. <laughs> I think that works well enough as an album review. Everything that you just said. <laughs> it's, I want to give it a novelty spin. You know what, though? Did Was I sharing what I found on Spotify with, with you guys at all? I can't remember who I was, I was 
I was DMing. Uh, so I searched. So it came out, right? And I searched Spotify for, for Barry Zito, you know? And <laughs> this album came up. And I'm going to I, just give me a couple, couple minutes to look this up. I'm going to vamp and, and talk uh, by myself sometime. But it is worth, oh my goodness, it is worth looking up. I didn't want to tweet it out because I thought the guy might be enough of a super fan that he like, follows me um, <laughs> on Twitter. So hopefully he doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, okay, so it is the San Francisco Sports Band. Look it up. So the the first album is in two thousand nine, right? So this is this is hardcore. This is before the championships. The first song title is Tim Litzicum. Uh Second is Matt Cain. The third is Don't Mess with Mike Singletary. Um, so he's he's bringing it in. Um, number six song is Manager Bruce Bochy has a big head with an exclamation point. Um, number eleven is Aaron Rowan. Watch where you're going. Um, and I I wish. Okay, let me see if if. Well, you know, I could I can play, play a clip. clip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just pick a song. If if you, if because I've got the headphones in, so I'm not sure if, if it's going to sound weird on my computer. But if yeah, you have Spotify, just any one of songs. Do you have nope. a favorite? Um, oh boy, let's see. I mean, just just go and do um, Aaron Rowan. Watch where you're going. <laughs> okay, here's a clip from Aaron Rowan. Watch where you're going. Hey, Aaron Rowan. I know there's no way you're slowing Because you always give it your all When you're tracking down those fly balls Even if it's against the wall Be careful, Aaron. Please be careful. That's, that's where that's going. All right. I just, uh, just, just for Grant's own edification, I guess, looking over the last five years, here are the pitchers who have thrown the most innings against the Giants starting from fifth to first, all right? All right, uh, Eric Stoltz, fifth, seventy-seven point two innings. It, Patrick has, Corbin has he pitched well? It's like a Stoltz pitch well. Oh, Eric Stoltz has pitched. What if you had to imagine an Eric Stoltz ERA? What would it be? Uh, three point seven three. Four point seven five. Yeah. Okay. Four point seven five. Fourth place, Patrick Corbin, eighty-eight point one innings. He's been good. Third place, Zach Greinke, ninety point one innings. He's been better. Ian Kennedy, second place, ninety-six innings. Second place. Remember this, 96 innings, Ian Kennedy. First place, Clayton Kershaw, 184.1 <laughs> innings against the Giants. Oh, that's amazing. But he, has, he has a sub-2 ERA, but he's 12-7. and seven. He's actually lost seven games against the Giants while allowing fewer than two earned runs per... But nevertheless, basically double as many innings as second place. Yeah, that, and that's what it feels like. Like every year, it's like just it, because when he pitches, he pitches eight or nine innings. So that's part of it. Right. But at the same time, it's it, you get that feel where like Dodgers coming to town. Oh, son of a, like there's never <laughs> there's never a chance that it's a two game series where you miss him because he's always he's you never miss Clayton Kershaw. And I don't know if the, uh, the Dodgers are doing that intentionally. If they are hats off, that's a heck of a strategy. But it, you definitely feel it as, as the season grinds on. OK, play. Let's play a real easy game here about Clayton Kershaw against the Giants. I'm going to say a, a number. It's a. Uh, it's going to be a decimal, and you're going to tell me whether that's the Giants' batting average on base percentage or slugging percentage against Clayton Kershaw. Okay. Two fifty-seven. That's their OPS. That's <laughs> <laughs> close enough. That's that's their slugging, right? Yeah, that's their slugging. Two fifty-seven. That's amazing. <laughs> oh man! All right, I guess we should do a prediction. You want to give us a win total? One hundred and four. No, um, I'm going to go ninety-one games. I think they they are good enough to to kind of crack that that eighty-six 
win barrier that most of the projection systems have. I, I think they'll be creative at the deadline like they usually are. I'll I'll go very, very bullish and say 91 wins. You're not going to call another World Series sweep? Um, <laughs> not not as such, no. I'm pretty sure they won't win the World Series in the, for the rest of my life. Just I... <laughs> I think we. I, I think they, they've kind of settled that, and all of that karma has has been sucked away, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, you know, they they bit the 49ers and and sucked their their life force out and used it very very well. But I, I just can't <laughs> predict them to win the World Series again. Question is, will any of those 91 wins be come from behind wins, and how many of those 71 losses will be late inning losses where they were winning and then the bullpen blew it? Did you see that the first spring game they won on a come from behind walk off over the night? <laughs> All right, <It's laughs> the first year. one. Yeah, it's just like yeah, w- great timing, idiots. <laughs> All right, setting the tone, setting the tone. <laughs> you all know where to find Grant. He's been at the same place forever. He's at espionation.com. He's at McCovey Chronicles. He's on Twitter at McCovey Cron. Thanks, Grant. All right, thanks, guys. What will I do? Here comes a change over me Something strange takes over me We're back and we're ready to talk about the Atlanta Braves. To do that, we have enlisted the aid of Mark Bradley, who is a columnist for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ben. Hey, Jeff. Hey. Yeah, nice to have you back. So, the Braves look different than they did last season. And for people who didn't watch that much Braves baseball last season, and they can probably be excused for that if they are not Braves fans, I guess. A lot of what went into their offseason thinking, and maybe part of it was the ballpark, and we'll get into that too, but the fact that the majority of their rotation spots are now devoted to veterans, in two cases, the most veteran pitchers (laughs) you could possibly find, that seems like a reaction to the fact that they went young with last year's rotation, and a lot of their prospects came up and debuted, and That seems like it should be a good thing, but the results were not. So could you describe the experience of watching the 2016 Atlanta Braves rotation? Um, It was weird because, you know, the the two guys particularly in question uh, were Aaron Blair, who they got in the, uh, whom they'd gotten in the Dansby Swanson trade, Mm -hmm. and uh, Matt Whistler, whom they'd gotten from the Padres. And they were considered, of all the players, the Braves, of all the young pitchers the Braves had amassed, and they've amassed a lot, they were the ones who was were considered the, the closest to the major leagues when, when, they were, when they were acquired. And Whistler had actually looked the part at, at the end of 2015. He, he didn't look like he was going to be, he didn't look like he was going to be Bob Feller, but he did look like he could be a number four or a number five starter. Blair was uh, was acquired uh, uh, over the off season uh, in the I guess December of 2015, and the Braves got him into the rotation uh, pretty quickly. They called him up I think in May, 
He had had a really good start in the minor leagues uh, in, in AAA. And the, at that time, the Braves season was already sunk. That, that's kind of what happens when you start 9-28. and 28. <laughs> and, and they thought, okay, you know, let's, uh, he, he's, we're, we're not rushing him. He, he had a big start for Gwinnett. He looked pretty good there. And, uh, and he came up, and he just wasn't very good. And you, you would watch him, and you would think, what, what is it about him that made you think he is he was this close to the major leagues? Then the the same thing happened with Whistler. He just went from being pretty okay to being pretty terrible. And by the end of the season, they were both back at Gwinnett, and they they really you know they they the Braves have gone to spring training this year saying that those guys are going to have to work their way back to the major leagues now. I do know that they there was they felt there was some disconnect with the pitching coach of last year, Roger McDowell, who is no longer the pitching coach. They mm-hmm. felt the Braves have felt that that McDowell, who did some very good work here, uh, you know, I, it was only in 2014 I think that the Braves led the major leagues in quality starts, which which I know is 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 a frowned upon stat, but it it tells you a little something. It tells you somebody's going out there and going six six full innings, and the Braves I think had like a almost. A, it, it was over 100 that year. They let all of baseball. Last year, they were down to 64 uh, in that stat, and and that represented a significant drop-off. And, they, you know, they they have Julio Tehran, who's real good, and they, they, they still like him a lot and consider him their cl- the closest thing they have to, to a number one starter. They like Fulton Yewitz, who, uh, who is the one... Ma- the one young guy that is going to be a part of this rotation from the start. And then, uh, but they didn't like anybody beyond that, which is why you ended up with two guys over 40 and one guy who's 30, and all of them are on short-term contracts, and the Braves are going to be paying them. I think a total, uh, I'm talking about Bartolo Colon, R.A. Dickey, and uh, Jaime Garcia, they're going to be paying them $32.5 million dollars this year, which is a lot of money, but they, it, it's also for 60% of what they think will be a rotation. And it, it, the Braves feel like that if they can get a slightly, if they can get just slightly better innings, slightly more and better, that they will have a chance to be maybe not a contender, but certainly not a team that, that starts 9-28. and 28. Well, I feel like you've sort of answered half of this question already, but when you talk about the Braves, clearly they're one of the four, five, or six rebuilding teams in Major League Baseball right now. They're the team that's opted to rebuild the most with the pitching. Of course, when you end up with as many free agent acquisitions in the rotation as they have now, it says something about the state of the pitching. You already talked about Blair, for example, last year, or Whistler. So when you look at the Braves right now, they've filled up their rotation with some veterans. Of course, Tehran is good at the front, but what is the sense regarding the development and the progress of the young pitchers? Because you have guys who have either struggled in the majors or you have Allard, Soroka, Anderson, etc., who are all pretty far away. Where is this rebuild considering the difficulty of nailing down where pitcher development really is? Well, I, I think you just pretty much hit on it right there <laughs> by saying that it, it's essentially a two-tiered thing. The the ones that the Braves got in trade, uh, in the Swanson trade, uh, they, they got Max Freed. Uh, Fulton Awitz came in the uh, Evan Gaddis trade. Freed was one of the guys who came from uh, the Padres. They, they made two big Padre- trades with San Diego back, uh, back in uh, the offseason of 2014-2015. Uh, so 
the ones the Braves were getting from other places are guys they like some, but they were also ones that they could they were getting because they could get them. You know, Freed was coming off of Tommy John. Uh, the apparently the uh, Diamondbacks and uh, uh, yeah the Diamondbacks and Dave Stewart had soured on uh, Tuki Toussaint, who's another guy, former first round pick that the Braves were able to basically buy for cash from Arizona, largely because Arizona had changed regimes and and Tuki wasn't acquired by the Dave Stewart Tony Larusa crew. The Braves to go back to the Padres that was after A.J. Preller got there and he was looking to add players, of add veteran players, and, and the Braves were able to give him Craig Kimbrell and uh, the two Uptons. But the ones the Braves have gotten uh, from other teams are guys they like. The ones they have drafted themselves, uh, and the first two were, uh, you, you mentioned, were Mike Soroka and Colby Allard. And last year were the was uh, Ian Anderson and Moeller and Wentz three high school arms who were their first three picks. They loved these guys. And and th- they're hoping that uh, that the crew they have, they spent on Cologne and Dickey and, and Garcia, will be able to get get them a little bit closer to the days when, when uh, those young guys, who I, I think are all still teenagers, I, I know, I know this, the second bunch is, but... Uh, the ones, and I'm pretty sure that Soroka and, and Allard are still teenagers too. These these are the guys, their high school arms, and these are the guys that they are the highest on of of all the pitchers in their system. So a lot of the second segment teams we've done so far in this series, the teams with pretty poor projections heading into this year. They had young rosters and they're playing rookies and they're just going to see what they have and they're not going to be great, but they're going to have a a bunch of fresh faces and the Braves are not that way. This is not really a young team as currently constructed. Maybe paradoxically it will get younger as time goes on, but it is Inciarte, Swanson, Freeman at the top of the lineup, and then everyone else is uh, 30-something, and then we've talked about the rotation already. There's just a lot of veteran on this team. Is that the impact of the ballpark solely, do you think, or in part? If if Capoella sort of had his druthers and there was no new ballpark to worry about and you didn't have to consider trying to put a competitive product out to please people who are coming to see the ballpark for the first time, do you think this team would look much different or do you think that this regime just wouldn't have the same tolerance that other organizations have for being terrible in the short term? Well, that's a good question and I'm not sure I know. I, I can look into Capolella's heart and, and say what he actually believes there. But I do think that the ballpark has something to do with it. I, th- I think there has always been the tacit concession, not the, not the outright, the o- not the overt kind. But I believe the Braves have always thought, you know, we're, gonna, we're moving into a new ballpark. We're going to have a little more money to spend from Liberty Media. We think we're going to sell more tickets. If we don't, then something's wrong. And, and I think that it, it, they feel that it is incumbent upon them to put out a representative product, which they didn't necessarily do each of the past two seasons. But this year, you know, they have never out, come out and said, we are building for 2017. And, and I doubt that they'll ever say, we're building for any date, any, any time ever, because I th- that, 
you know, the, if you're tearing down the way they've torn down, I don't know that there's ever a target date. Or, or if there is, it's not something you want to advertise. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that what the Braves have done is that they've tried to, like, like find players and then they've wanted to make the major league team sort of not terrible and then see what happens with the minor league guys. Because, you know, they're... A lot of people, I, I know, I, I, I kind of think I know what Coppolella is thinking in most every trade he has made, but the Matt Kempen last year was, was one that, that I, I looked at it and I thought, well, other than dumping the salary they were owed, they, they owed Hector Oliveira, I'm not sure this is a great trade. And I'm, I'm still not sure it was a great trade, and I'm still not sure it was the cause to the effect that, that seemed to occur in the second half of the season, which was a team that absolutely couldn't hit in the first part of the season. The Braves were last in runs, last in the majors in runs and, and OPS as a team over the first, uh, uh, before the All-Star break. After the All-Star break, they were third in OPS. Same, same team, basically, with just Matt Kemp different. Uh, and Swanson was there by the end, but, but he, he only came up in, in the, uh, I think the second week of August. And, you know, and if you look at Kemp's numbers, they still aren't, you know, he's still not Mike Trout, you know, in war or any other measurement. But he did seem to have the effect of putting, uh, putting guys in the lineup where it, the lineup wasn't just awful. There weren't so many holes in it. If nothing else, Kemp is is capable of running into a ball and and hitting it over the wall, which the Braves could not do for 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 two for 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 year, the first part of the season. I mean, they were we we did a lot of Braves home run stats, and, and you know, at one point there were like. 37 players in the major leagues that had more home runs than the Braves like six weeks into the season or something like that. I mean, it was amazing. That They also, the, the, the development of Enciarte, who was hurt in the third game of, the, of last year and really didn't get going until July, uh, that was a big key too because he, he was a really big part of the Swanson trade. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of commentators on on fan graphs and and such like sites were saying, you know, Enciarte himself might have been worth uh, Shelby Miller. Uh, mm-hmm. And and if you if you saw him at the end of the year, you thought, yeah, this guy's really good. You know, he won a Gold Glove and he uh, he actually hit very well. And he, he you know he's he was he has just now turned 26. The Braves have locked him up through 2020. You know, and that's a big deal. But uh, at at one point last year, you looked at their outfield, and it was Nick Markakis who was still not hitting home runs. It was Enciarte who wasn't hitting at all, and it was Malik Smith who were who was kind of a probably a fourth outfielder is is going to be his his destiny. And and they had all three left-handers, all three of them, none of them ever hit the ball over the fence. And you brought in Camp, and you got right-handed bat who could hit the occasional home run. And you could put him behind Freeman. After you got Swanson, there's another right-hander. And it was just, I'm not sure exactly how it happened. And I'm not sure if I believe it is, to use one of those terms, sustainable. But to watch the Braves hit the ball the second half of the season was like, you know, did I like miss like three years or something? And this team go from being able to hit nothing to being able to hit something? And it, <laughs> it was it was weird. And... Again, I'm not sure that the second half was necessarily 
reality either. But I do think that that's something that they pin a lot on this year, is that, is that they think they are, they are going to hit better, and they are going to score a, little, a few more runs. And if they can get just these three guys, the new guys, the old guys, to eat enough innings that they might have a chance to win 80 games. One of uh, one of the fun things about examining how the Cubs just won everything is that, of course, they had a, a very effective rebuild, but they, they got, I think, maybe the best word is lucky. They were lucky to get Kyle Hendricks for Ryan Dempster. They were lucky to get Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope for Scott Feldman. They were lucky that the Astros drafted Mark Appel instead of Chris Bryant. Who knows where the Cubs rebuild would be without those three transactions. You might be able to see where this is going, but where do you think the Braves rebuild would be right now if it weren't for Dave Stewart having a stroke one evening? You know, it's interesting because I, I know Coppolella really like, I, I know you're going to say, you're gonna, I'm going to say this and you're going to say, well, of course he does. But I, I know John John really likes Dave Stewart as a guy. and <laughs> And I know that he... In many ways, he felt kind of terrible about the, the the backlash that happened out there that ended up, of course, with... In fact, when the Braves, I think, finally won a game last year, and it took them forever to do it, uh, he said uh, he said that uh, Dave Stewart was the first guy to call and congratulate him. So, I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I think that, you know, certainly the Braves, the, the Braves fleeced... Arizona in a way that teams almost never get fleeced anymore. But, you know, if you look, they they also did pretty well in their trades with uh, San Diego. And, you know, they, they got Dustin Peterson, who is an outfield prospect. They got uh, Freed, as we've mentioned. They got uh, Jace Peterson, who's probably going to be their starting second baseman again this year. They got a lot out of a lot of people. But it, that said, I mean, Coppola can work 20 more years in baseball and still not make a better trade than the one he made with Shelby Miller. <laughs> can you tell us about Brian Snitker? Because he kind of goes against the grain of the new type of managerial hiring, you know, a, a recently retired major leaguer who is interested in advanced metrics or that sort of thing. And he's barely older than his players. And he kind of works well with the GM and that sort of thing. And Snitker is an older guy. He's, uh, you know, never made the majors as a player. He came up through the organization and managed in the minors, sort of a an older school trajectory. So can you Tell us about him for, again, people who may not have watched that much Braves baseball last year. Well, if you watched much baseball, Braves baseball last year, you, you probably need to find something else in your life. Because, <laughs> I mean, there was, there was really nothing to watch, at least until the end. And, you know, the Braves felt, and, and by the Braves, I mean John Hart and John Coppolella, they felt a tremendous debt of gratitude towards Snitker because they handed him a team that was on pace to be worse than the, the 1962 Mets. And Freddie, uh, I mean, you know, we, we, I mean, they were nine and 28 and they were, they looked, they were nine and 28 on merit. And, mm -hmm. and they, they handed him this team and basically said, do something with it. And he actually did something with it. I mean, they were much better at the second half than they were, the first half, you, of course, you couldn't have been any worse than they were. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, they they look like a pretty good team by year's end. Now, again, you really have to take with several grains of salt what whether or not a bad team playing well at the end is signifies anything in the grand scheme. But I think the Braves feel like that that 
Snitker did enough to make... When they promoted Snitker, I don't think they ever thought that they were going to make him their permanent manager. They've never come out and said that. But my sense was that they were going to hire somebody like Bud Black. And up until September, I expected them to hire somebody like Bud Black, who was available and who ended up getting the Colorado job. But... You know, it, it turned out that that they really liked what Snitker did. They liked the way that the team was playing for him. And, and I, they were really torn because they interviewed Black and they interviewed Ron Washington. And they, you know, it was one of those things that I think if they didn't like Snitker so much as a guy, they would have said, look, we're, you know, we really appreciate everything you've done for us, but we, we you know, we're just going to go in a different direction. I I I think this was almost like a, like a fifty one forty nine call, and they ended up saying, "Look, we're going to keep the guy we have and see what happens." And it is noteworthy that that they he's only on essentially a one year contract, which means the Braves were sold on him, but not really sold on him. So I I think they they've given themselves some wiggle room here. If if it doesn't work the second time around, then they. They can walk away. I think there's a buyout or something, but uh, but I I think that this is one that I, I understand what you're saying about he doesn't necessarily fit the neo manager type. And if it were Which me, not necessarily it, a bad thing. Yeah, I'm not saying that uh, yeah. that you have to. But yeah, no, but no, I understand, and I think I probably would have gone with Bud Black too. If 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 you had said one or the other, I would have said, okay, Bud Black. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're building around young pitching. Bud, Bud Black was a pitcher, was a pitching coach, has been pretty good with pitching. Uh, I never thought that his tenure in uh, in San Diego was anything that should ever disqualify him from from uh, from another job. I thought he did pretty well out there, all things mm-hmm. considered. But I, I think the Braves felt, felt a debt toward Snitker, and that was the reason that they ended up hiring him for one year. So I don't want to get too stuck on one number, but baseball has its its sexier numbers and its less sexy numbers. We have data going back 15 years. So over those 15 years, there have been 9,883 pitcher seasons. So seasons in which a given pitcher has thrown at least one pitch, I guess. So I've sorted all of those pitcher seasons by average fastball velocity, and the top five is four Araldus Chapman seasons and one 2016 Mauricio Cabrera, of course, he was a rookie last year for the Braves. He averaged 100.1 miles per hour on his fastball. Only Chapman has topped that, which he's done twice. Three pitcher seasons have reached that elusive triple-digit mark. So there are two interesting things, I guess, about Mauricio Cabrera. One, he throws his fastball super hard. Two, he doesn't seem that good. Quite, you know, at you least. know that's you know <laughs> that's pretty interesting because I've thought the same thing because uh, okay, and, good, and, you yeah, know where this question's going. Yeah, he's he's fun to watch, and and the Braves the Braves actually like the the uh, composition of their bullpen this year. If I can just throw that in, they that that's one of the reasons they re-signed Jim Johnson. Uh, they like uh, Arodas Vizcaino, who started very well last year and then sort of fizzled. But they still like him, and they they like Cabrera a lot, and they um, they like Ian Kroll. They've got they've got some they they feel like their bullpen now has a chance to be one of these newfangled mix and match things. I don't know that they have Andrew Miller sitting out there, but uh, I, I do think that they like the fact that they might be able to close with some some different people, be it Vizcaino you know, or or Jim Johnson, and they also like the fact that. 
Cabrera throws 103 miles an hour. And, <laughs> and it, you know, they think that they, they, you know, not many guys can do that. And they, they really believe that, uh, that uh, he does have closing potential, but that it's not there yet. And, you know, you, you watch him and he's throwing really hard and you think, boy, that's, that's amazing. And then you see he gives up three runs and you think, okay, how's, how's that happening? But, uh, I, I don't know the answer and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know that they know the answer either, but I do think that they, they are, that's one guy they're not going to give up on, uh, um, you know, to get uh, uh, another utility infielder. So the Braves home opener is scheduled for April 14th. There will be baseball played at SunTrust Park on that day. Where do things stand as far as the parking situation, the transportation situation? Is it still a crisis or <laughs> things coming closer to a resolution? Well, it's a crisis for me because I live four miles from the ballpark. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah and we, all we talk about out here in Cobb County is how bad it's going to be for the Braves games. And everybody says, it's pretty darn bad. Mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> believe it or not, my dentist actually is in a tower overlooking the ballpark. So... Whenever I've gone to the dentist the last couple of years, I've been able to watch uh, and, and see the pro- progress of the stadium. And it was only about the fourth time that I was there that it struck me, where are all these people going to park? And he said, mm-hmm. that's the thing. He said, they, they've come to his, he's in the Galleria, which is a large, large complex there. And he said, you know, they've come to us and said, do you mind if we rent your, uh, rent your parking decks uh, for Braves mm-hmm. games? And the answer is, yeah, we mind because if your if your fans are parking here, our you know our patrons are not going to park here. My patients aren't going to park here. I think the traffic issue is going to be really bad because, uh, you know, I, I I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Atlanta traffic grid, but it's pretty awful yes, on a yes, good you day. Do. Yeah, it, it's pretty <laughs> awful on a good day. And then we also have the stadium is is literally right by I-75 and I-285, which are two of the busiest interstates, not just in Atlanta, but in this part of the country. And there's also another major thoroughfare, uh, US-41, which is Cobb Parkway, that runs right by the stadium, too. So, you know, wherever there's going to be traffic out there at midnight on a Thursday night with without the Braves playing baseball there. But put it out there when they're playing 7 o'clock games in rush hour is going to be pretty... It's going to be interesting. And the other part, but I think what my dentist has told me is that he is actually more, he thinks that the, that the Cobb County officials will figure out the way to make traffic work somewhat. He's just worried about where the park, where people are going to put their cars because there's not really a lot of parking out there. And even now, the Braves are kind of like rolled out their grand traffic plan in, in, in stages. And I'm still not sure they've said exactly where all these cars are going to go. Hmm. Going to have to have your dentist done sometime soon. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you should. He's he's already thinking. He's thinking about renting out his dental chair to so you can watch the game. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we've come to the prediction part of the podcast. So, do you want to give us a win total for the 2017 Braves? 
um, in the in the in the blush of enthusiasm after they finished fairly strongly last year and blew the blew the number two pick in the draft on the last day of the season. By, winning, by beating Justin Verlander and the Tigers one to nothing, they managed to fall from number two to number five in the draft hmm. slot, which uh, which which is probably not a great thing in the grand scheme, but it seemed like a big deal at the time. I, I think I said eighty wins like a a, a few weeks after that. I, I think losing Sean Rodriguez for the season, it's that's going to be a big thing because they saw him as being. They're Ben Zobris. They th- they thought that he could play a lot of second base, that he could uh, he could provide cover at third base for uh, Adonis Garcia if he doesn't pan out, that he could play in left field uh, on days when Kemp doesn't. They re- they really thought he was go- he was going to be a a regular regular, and uh, they they liked him a lot. And now he's pr- he's probably going to miss the year after being hurt in in the car wreck. So I, I'm going to dial that down a little bit. I'm going to say 77 wins. All right. Well, that still sounds pretty decent, I guess. Oh, that's 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 pretty great when you were when you yeah. were nine and 28. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Coming out of the blocks last year. So <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Well, you can read Mark in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. You can find him on Twitter at Mark Bradley AJC. Thank you, Mark. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be on uh, Effectively Wild. No yeah, matter no matter where no matter where the home where it is housed, it's always great. <laughs> right. All right, that's it for today. Some sad news to relay to longtime listeners. Ned Garver, perhaps the best Effectively Wild guest of all time, has died at age 91. Ned, of course, was the former major league pitcher in the 40s, 50s, and 60s for four different teams. A very good pitcher, was an MVP runner-up once, and was even better the year before that. Sam Miller and I cold-called him on episode 722, just completely out of the blue. His name came up in a play index segment we were doing, and we just called him as a lark. And he picked up, and he humored us, and he talked to us for a while. That was in 2000. 2015, but even at that age, he had very clear memories and an active mind, and he was just a, a joy to talk to, and by all accounts, a really nice guy who would sign autographs for anyone who mailed things to him. So I'm glad that this show was able to introduce a new generation to Ned Garver. I'm glad that Sam and I had a chance to talk to him. He and I shared a birthday, and after talking to him, I felt kind of attached to him, so I was sorry to see the news. The Effectively Wild community will miss him. Condolences to his family and friends, and if you haven't, listen to the interview, I'd encourage you to go back either in the BP archives or the Fangraphs archives, episode 722, and the segment where we call him starts 32 minutes and 30 seconds into that episode. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support are Brian Hamilton, Graham Lesh, Francesca Ossie, Greg, and Gary Jacobs. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you're looking for something else to listen to, I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. Michael Bauman and I talked to Joe Posnanski about baseball's rule-fixing fixation and the intentional walk. And we also interviewed the Padres' Christian Bethencourt, who is attempting to become a two-way player. You can find that on the Ringer MLB show feed. Keep your questions coming. Jeff and I will do a listener email show next time. So send us some questions at podcast.fangraphs.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we will talk to you then. Fond farewell to a friend. This is not my life.